This is a Federal News Network podcast. The remaining days of the 117th Congress leaves both chambers with a bit of an agenda. Perhaps topping the list for the Senate is keeping its record of passing defense authorization bills by the end of the calendar year. We get this and more from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And now the lame duck is paddling away. That's right. We had one week before Thanksgiving, and now we're really at the the meaty part of the lame duck session where they have a couple of key things they want to get done, probably a wish list beyond that of things they'd like to do if they can get them done. And then um, obviously they'll at some point make calls on what they're going to leave till next year. But this is going to be the interesting part of the year right now where there's a big agenda, a lot of optimism of getting things done. And also with the looming party change with the Republicans taking over the House next month in January, um, that's going to be, you know, a big thing for Democrats to bear in mind as they decide what to get done and what to try to do in this this part of the year. Now, there are a thousand amendments to that NDAA, and most of them are probably routine, but there's always a little controversy, so that may not be a given I guess it's never a given, even though they have done it for 60 years. Right, they have. And there seems to be momentum toward getting this done. And I'm not sure that we're going to see much on this Senate version that was unveiled back in October. They took a break from their election recess to come and start debate formally on this bill, but really haven't done anything with it since. And the idea has really been that the big four or the four corners, as they're known, the House and Senate Armed Services Chairman and Ranking Member have been getting in a room and talking about what they want to do as the broad contours of that bill to try and get something done to then present to both chambers at some point in December for votes and potentially pass that, get it to President Biden's desk and you know call it a day on that important legislation. I think one of the key questions is what's going to be in that bill from the defense side? And then the other is what else do you put in there using it as a very important vehicle that members want to get done to push through other things, um, whether it's Joe Manchin wanting his permitting legislation that there obviously will be some yeah. pushback on and, you know, sundry other things that have been brought up in the two versions that have been unveiled so far. And they're dealing with the Federal Highway Administration leadership that has been authorized, though, to start spending some of that infrastructure money. That was part of the bipartisan infrastructure law that was signed back in 2021 with much fanfare. We just celebrated the one-year anniversary of that, and there's been some hearings on Capitol Hill looking at how to dole out that money and and how that will work with the states. Um, One key question, though, is who's in charge of the Federal Highway Administration, and the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee this week will be holding a vote, or scheduled at least to hold a vote, on that nomination, try to get that through. It's an important position, billions of dollars being doled out to the states for different transportation projects, so certainly the implementation of that law is ongoing, but will be a focus going forward because some of that money is due to be spent um, even without further appropriations action, although every appropriations law is a chance to do something more or to to adjust the funding that has been provided. And thanks to the latest Ponzi, Madoff type of scheme with the failure of that FTX outfit and Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, that's given the Agriculture Committee in the Senate some work now. Absolutely. They're holding a hearing this week on the FTX failure and and everything that went into that. Um, Agriculture committees do have some oversight of commodities and the Commodities Future Trading Commission, and so therefore they have a stake in this. This is just going to be the tip of the iceberg on these hearings, though, both this year under Democrats in the House and the Senate, and then I think going into next year as well, Republicans, when they take over the Financial Services Committee, will be looking into this as well. I think this will be an ongoing area of oversight among regulators 
others too, who, you know, this is some brave new world territory when it comes to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency that they've been trying to figure out how to wrap their arms around. Um, and a number of regulators could have a piece of this, just given how intertwined this is with various aspects of the economy and the financial system. But this will definitely push the agenda on regulation of that. The question is, what is it? Is it a commodity? Is it a security? And is it a financial purely instrument? I mean, it's nothing but a piece of encrypted software that somebody says, okay, I think it's worth 10000 You think it's worth 12000 They've got to figure that out, don't they? On some level, yes. But there's also, you know, security laws about what you can say to potential investors. And um, there's always the FTC and looking into, you know, fraud is fraud, whatever it might be underpinning it. So if, if there are fraudulent activities going on, that's where they would get a piece of it as well, potentially. So a number of agencies, a number of questions there and broad interest in Congress um, with, uh, as I say, both parties going to want to have a piece of this and look into it as well. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director of Bloomberg government. And then, of course, there is the December 16th expiration of government funding. And I think, what is it? Wednesday is is December, the start of December. So we are into that glide slope. That's right. That's the other big package that Congress has to deal with in the lame duck session. Um, they have been working over time on this, but still never got that top line agreement that would give direction to the subcommittees on how to reach and write their bills. But I think that's going to be a major focus once they're back into town, trying to come up with some sort of agreement there. There are retiring chairman and ranking members in the Senate side with Richard Shelby and Patrick Leahy both retiring. They won't be here. They'd like to clear the decks for their successors, um, try to get something done on that before the end of the year. If they needed more time, obviously another continuing resolution is an option to give themselves a week if they needed that to finalize negotiations and then write and vote on that bill and get it to the president. Um, But that will be another attractive package for um, other provisions that can't go on their own, don't make it into NDAA, or will buy support for this package, which is going to need bipartisan support in the Senate to get over that 60-vote threshold um, that applies to most legislation. So that's going to be a a major focus of the next several weeks, trying to fund the government. Uh, There has been pressure in the past from some House Republicans to maybe kick the can into next year when they will have one of the two chambers and have more leverage. Uh, We'll have to see if that is an argument that's listened to or if they try to get it wrapped up and done. And on House new leadership, when will that vote take place? And from everything we've heard, it might be a little bit too early yet for Kevin McCarthy to do the proverbial drapes measuring. So we're kind of in between. The House Republicans had their internal vote for their leadership and nominated Kevin McCarthy to be speaker, um, which that vote will take place early next year on the House floor. And he has to have a majority of the members who vote at that time. So there will be question marks until that January vote over as to whether he can really get over the line. This week, we're going to see the Democratic caucus in the House convene to choose new leaders for the first time in quite a while. You, You know, a generational change is perhaps overused, but in this case, it's real because Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, very familiar faces have said they won't be leaders in the next Congress. So we're looking at a new crop there with Hakeem Jeffries, Catherine Clark and Pete Aguilar likely to get those top three slots and lead the Democrats next year. So um, those organizational matters will continue the vote on internal rules and get ready for that all important January start of the new Congress. And if you look at everybody on both sides, House and Senate, Republican and Democrat that are leaving 
that's really centuries of experience walking out the doors. Yeah, Patrick Leahy's been around since the 70s. That's a long time. Um, and there aren't a lot of members who have experience going back that far. So um, some expertise out the door and new blood coming in, constant change in the Congress. That's that's part of covering it that makes it interesting. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director of Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in in federal service? And she said, "Uh, isn't that for old people? (laughs) I said, "Uh, (laughs) um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First. Always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, 
think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com/podcast1 to learn more and start your free trial.